Gateway. Happy Sunday to you. Here we are in the midst of it all, right? Who's the president? As I'm recording this, I don't know, but praise be to God, we get to respond to his faithfulness, to his steadfast love. And so uh, wherever you're at right now, kitchen table, on your couch, lounging hard in your bed, let me invite you uh, to respond to God's word. So would you stand with me uh, for the reading of his word? We Wait for it. We are still in the gospel according to Mark. We're in Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 13. This is what we read. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. You can have a seat or get back in bed wherever you are. You see, in a matter of a few days, our family will welcome a new human into the world A new beginning of sorts will start for us. As we near that day, I'm often asked this piercing question, how are you feeling? And because I'm still learning about these feelings and the emotional process some three decades into my life, that's a really hard question. And so my go-to answer most of the time is all of them. How are you feeling, Kyle? All of the feelings. And part of that answer does come from laziness because it's emotionally taxing to be aware of our feelings. I mean, just think how you feel post-election. See, that's hard work, isn't it? It's it's hard to be aware of our feelings. So part of it is laziness and the, the rest of it is this mix of honesty and uncertainty. I mean, just consider the moment that we're in for, for just for a moment. Global pandemic, racial and political unrest, not to mention there's all of life's mundane concerns that came with us into this moment. And all of this serves as a potent reminder that life is both fragile and precious. That human life compels people, both on the left and the right, to stand up, to raise their voice, to cry out for life from the womb to the tomb and everything in between. We see that life is both precious and fragile. And for me, this season, it only serves to amplify my awareness that what we're about to receive is like a gift. And this is a common statement, is it not, that life is a gift? But have you ever paused to ask, a gift from whom? So interestingly, that question and this sequence uh, brings us back to our teaching text and specifically to this question, what belongs to God? I imagine that if you grew up in or around the church, in or around churchianity, that that 
question may have come up at one time or another. And and when that question did come up, there was this reflex that came out of you. You you almost didn't even recognize it as such, but this this thing came out and you just said, what belongs to God? All things. It was like all those Sunday schools just condensed into a single statement, all things, or, or maybe the answer was just Jesus. And of course, that's always a good one to go with too. And at a theological level, that that reflex, the reflex to say all things, I mean, that's right. That's entirely correct. And yet, despite the theological accuracy of our reflex, our lives often say something different. To say that another way, when it comes to our experience, all things do not belong to God. Just think about this past week, your vote. Does that belong to God? What about your 401k or your work in general? Do those things belong to God? What about something maybe a bit more complex and touchy? What about your sexuality or your gender identity? Do those things belong to you or do they belong to God? See, my my point is this, that our lives betray, not portray, our lives betray our theological reflex. And so we just have to ask again, what does it really look like for all things to belong to God? And so to to get there, let's turn back to our teaching text. Go with me to verse 13, and we read this. And they, now this is the, the religious leaders, they sent to him, Jesus, some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Their motives are certainly mixed. And if you can recall, Jesus is off this uh, confrontation from our the previous scene with other religious leaders, a confrontation that challenged his authority. And then it's like they're just, uh, there's no pause. It's like these one group of leaders leaves a little discouraged, and then another lead, group of leaders is there. They're just lining up to challenge Jesus. And so the Pharisees and the Herodians enter the scene. And if this leadership combo, if it sounds familiar, it's because it is. Uh, we met this unlikely duo back in chapter 3 when they started to plot together how to destroy Jesus. Uh, So they've been kind of uh, putting, putting their brains together for some time now of how to destroy Jesus. And let me just remind us that these groups, they would typically have nothing to little to do with one another. It it would be like PETA, the the people for the ethical treatment of animals, getting together with Joe Exotic of the the Tiger King himself, and them starting to go on some business adventure together. It, it, like, that's just not going to happen. And if it does, it's so odd. That is the oddity of this duo. Because on one side, you have the Pharisees who have this robust moral vision for Israel. It's a vision that is absent of Caesar and absent of his oppressive rule. It's, it's a vision for all of the people to live like the priests and the temples, to, for them to be so holy that then God would see their holiness and come and restore his presence to his people. On the other side, you have the Herodians, this pseudo-religious group of people who have aligned themselves with a man who's known for beheading one of God's prophets, John the Baptist. This same person has aligned his life with Rome. So the two couldn't be further apart, except when it comes to the threat of Jesus. And now, now here, in the wake of confrontation and growing tension, they set a trap for Jesus. Just check this out in verse 14. And they came and said to Jesus, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. Off to an odd start. 
They go on, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. So it's like they're buttering Jesus up. It's, it's the moment when you try and say something nice and then you have that unfortunate conjunction, but I love you, but I'm really frustrated with you. Like the I love you statement goes right out the window because you negated it all and then it's just your frustration. That's kind of what's happening here. So truly, you teach the way of God. And then this question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? So I love when Jesus gets caught up in these tense moments. I love it because he allows for the intensity of the moment to amplify the truth. See, to call on Caesar, and more specifically, to call on the taxes that would be due Caesar is brilliant. So they've taken this time, they're plotting to destroy Jesus, to insert this one question into Jesus's ministry. And at the peak of it, surrounded by people in the temple courts during Passover, is it lawful? See, if Jesus says, yeah, just pay those taxes, then some would accuse him of being in bed with Rome and thereby denying God. But if he denies Caesar and then then he implicitly aligns himself with civil disobedience. And if he denies Caesar, then he's a threat to Caesar and they've got him. And either way, they've got him. Or so they think. See, neither option is good because neither option fully represents God's vision for humanity. So we're wondering, okay, well, what, what will Jesus do? And that's where we go to verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, well, just pause right there. What is, it, what is it to you that Jesus knows their hypocrisy? Is, is this like something where the Spirit of God has so filled Jesus that he's discerning that? Maybe. Or, or perhaps it is so plainly obvious that he just sees it right in front of him. Like they are blind to their own hypocrisy. I think that's often how hypocrisy works. We are blind to it ourselves. And this is Jesus. He knows their hypocrisy. And out of that knowledge, he says, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius, let me look at it. So they bring him one. And then he says, whose likeness and description is this? Ah, it's Caesar's. Okay, just give to Caesar's what's his. And to God, the things that are God's, that they marveled at. And this whole scene, this whole scene, and in turn our teaching, it hinges on this moment. So, so look again at Jesus' question in verse 16. Whose likeness and inscription is this? So picture the moment. Jesus' interrogators, these pious religious leaders and these Christian political pundits, they have come to Jesus and they're uh, buttering him up and then they, they kind of like hide daggers in their words and they sh throw this question at him. Now they're holding out a Roman coin to a man who's acting like he's never even heard of Caesar. How brilliant this is, Jesus. He's like, so whose face is on this tiny piece of metal? Oh, it's, oh, it's well, what are the words? Oh, God, okay, so apparently this is Caesar's. And if it's Caesar's, then just give him what's his. If his domain is over tiny pieces of metal, just give him back. And, and this is where the truth is amplified. Because Jesus goes further than their questioning. He could have stopped right there, but, but he goes on. And in verse 17, he goes on to call these leaders to give to God the things that are God's. And so once again, we must ask, well, what then belongs to God? And here's the clue. 
If the likeness or the image of a, on a coin tells us who it belongs to, then following the same logic, to see what belongs to God, we must consider who or what bears God's likeness or God's image. And so to do so, to turn back with me all the way to page one of your Bibles, back in Genesis chapter one, or I guess you could just look at your notes. This is what we read, Genesis chapter one, verse 26. We read this, then God said, let us make humanity. Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule. If a coin stamped with Caesar's likeness belongs to Caesar, then whatever stamped with God's likeness, God's image, belongs to God. So think about this. Who bears God's image? Or, or to say it another way, who's caught up in God's belonging? Well, you see it right there in Genesis 126. We are. Humanity belongs to God. And hear this, Gateway. Bearing God's image is not just about the way that we reason, how we think. It's not just about how we love or how we feel more generally. It's far greater than that. It is those component parts do make this up, but it's far more to, to bear God's image is to represent God as a priestly ruler on earth. See, this is what it would have meant when Jesus was saying it, because that's what it meant for the Hebrew people. You see, they would not, it would not be uncommon for them to have temples to other gods, regional deities. And in those temples, there would be an icon. Uh, in the Hebrew, the word is selim. There would be this icon there, and that statue would be there to remind them. It would be the embodiment of the presence of that God. And then a ruler would be endowed with that specific role of ruling. See, in, in ancient Mesopotamia, this is the context where this comes out of. It's the place where the Hebrew Bible is born. There are other creation accounts that exist. So parallel things, or rather not parallel, but competing views of how creation got going. So there's Israel's neighbors, the Canaanites and the Ammonites, and they would tell stories about these demonic battles and, and chaos as the start of all things. One God blowing open the mouth of another, shooting an arrow to debilitate the God and then ripping the God's body in half and the upper half becomes the skies and the bottom half becomes the earth and then the gods get tired and so they kill another God and pour their blood on the dirt and they make humanity to be slaves to God. This is the chaos out of which those people think the world exists. And yet, in all of that, the people existed to serve the gods. Their whole lives were to be given over for the God's good. So the people then would serve the one, the one person who is endowed with the representation of that God, the king. But this is not what Yahweh did. See, he speaks and all the elements of the universe follow. And God's speeches, they're not these like cutting demands. He, unlike us, like he doesn't hide daggers in his words. His words are almost invitations. In the Hebrew, it's this, this tense, the jussive. It's the difference between saying, get me a burger and let's go get a burger. Do, do you hear the difference there? One is a command and a demand. The other is like an invitation for us to do it together. So when God says, let us make humanity in our image and in our likeness so that they may rule, 
he is establishing an entirely different paradigm. See, there is darkness. There is some picture of chaos of sort, but it doesn't affect God. He has no rivals, and he speaks and generates life out of his speech. And then he establishes humanity, male and female, to represent him in the world. See, in Yahweh's world, it's not one powerful person dominating every other person. It's every person, male and female. Which, by the way, to have female representations of the divine in the world is revolutionary. It would blow the, like, it blows our socks off today, and it would have shattered every category. Some people, some scholars actually think that it's a later addition because it's just so category shifting. I actually think that that is the ethic and heart of God is to represent his power, his grace, his beauty completely in the woman and in the man. So we're formed. We're not formed out of chaos and blood. We are formed out of dirt and divine breath. Like God breathes life into us and that is the one in whom we live and move and have our being. And then humanity filled with the life of God is placed in a garden and told to get after it. To, to push the bounds of Eden out into all of the world. That is what it is to represent God. And certainly it takes the full emotional expression of humanity and it takes the full cognitive capacity of humanity, but it is those are component parts of their representation of God in the world. See, the image of God is a vision for what we are to do. How we reason and love, they're only those component parts. This is why they marveled at Jesus. Because Jesus opened their eyes afresh to God's vision for humanity. So I know we just dove down deep, so take a deep breath. This is who you are. At one who bears God's image. At the fundamental level, that is who you are, that is who I am, is one who bears God's image. See, so this passage, this passage is about, about taxes and giving to God what's God. Um, this is not about the separation of church and state. This is not about you paying your taxes or you tithing. And please, like, tithe, that is an act of obedience to God. Cool, we can, that's a sermon for another time, but that's not what this is about. This is a passage about what it means to be human and a call from Jesus back into that reality because at, at the most fundamental level, to be human is to belong to God. It's to belong as one who bears his image, who bears his likeness. See, to represent his life and his light and his love in the world, that is our calling. But let me just ask you, in this text in Mark, like, do you feel the warm fuzzies? Like, do you feel the life and light of love just kind of oozing out of this passage? I didn't. I don't imagine that you did when you heard it read. I mean, these are people who are trying to trap Jesus with execution on mind. They're trying to trap him in his words. See, in one scene, we witness Jesus calling us back to God and the rejection of God. We witness Jesus calling us to who we truly are and the perversion of who we are and the outworking of sin. See, 
we all bear God's image. And we've all rejected that reality. It's it's like God's representatives bailed on God to represent themselves. That's the, that's the substance of what's going on here. Theologians have a technical term for this. You perhaps have heard it. It's called sin. Any failure to reflect God in nature, attitude, or action, it's entirely pervasive in our experience of the world. Uh, maybe you know sin by another name. Maybe it's the human fallout to story, the, the fall. My personal favorite, however, is, is this. It's incurvatus. This is the inward turn of the soul. However you get at that description of, of us bailing on God to represent ourselves, um, uh, Tim Mackey of the Bible Project calls it uh, humanity giving God the middle finger. I think that's also really funny. That was not in my notes, but that one was for free. Uh, see, however you get at this, sin is this failure for us as the image of God to, ref- to reflect that back in the world. And it, in such a place, we perpetually, that is, in our sin, we perpetually aspire to be less than we are. Here's what I mean. We attach ourselves, our our hearts, our, our desires, our longings, we attach ourselves and our significance and in turn our belonging to things like a marital status or ethnicity, to to our sexual orientation. We attach ourselves to a political party. My goodness, did we ever see that? Are we seeing that right now? We attach ourselves to what we do or if we've retired, what we used to do. We, We tell the war stories of old. And when these things crumble as they're prone to do, so too does our sense of self, our significance, and ultimately our belonging. See, the call of God is to detach from the world that is marred by sin and then to attach ourselves to God in Christ. Just listen to these words from Romans 5. This is kind of us landing the plane. We're going to let Paul in Romans 5, as he's addressing this very issue, kind of um, speak to our hearts. And I, I love this. This is uh, from Eugene Peterson. This is from his uh, translation, The Message. It's like a very, very amplified translation. This is a, a translation of the Bible that he wrote for his congregation. And it, it speaks to my heart, and I hope it does to yours as well. Listen to these words from Romans 5, starting in verse 12. You know the story of how Adam landed us in this dilemma we're in? First sin, then death. And no one exempt from either sin or death. That sin disturbed relations with God in everything and everyone. But the extent of the disturbance was not clear until God spelled it out in detail to Moses. So death, this huge abyss separating us from God, dominated the landscape from Adam to Moses. Even those who didn't sin precisely as Adam did by disobeying a specific command of God still had to experience this termination of life, this separation from God. But Adam, who got us into this, also points ahead to the one who will get us out of it. Yet the rescuing gift is not exactly parallel to the death-dealing sin. If one man's sin put crowds of people at the end, death at the dead end abyss of separation from God, just think what God's gift poured through one man, Jesus Christ, will do. 
There's no comparison between that death-dealing sin and this generous life-giving gift. The verdict on that one sin was the death sentence. The verdict on the many sins that followed was this wonderful life sentence. If death got the upper hand through one man's wrongdoing, can you imagine the breathtaking recovery life makes, sovereign life in those who grasp with both hands this wildly extravagant life gift, this grand setting everything right gift, the the one man Jesus Christ provides. Here it is in a nutshell. Just as one person did it wrong and got us all in trouble with sin and death, another person did it right and got us out of it. But more than just getting us out of trouble, he got us in to life. One man said no to God and put many people in the wrong. One man said yes to God and put many in the right. All that passing laws against sin did was produce more lawbreakers. But sin didn't and doesn't have a chance in competition with the aggressive forgiveness we call grace. When it's sin versus grace, grace wins hands down. All sin can do is threaten us with death, and that's the end of it. Grace, because God is putting everything together through the Messiah, invites us into life, a life that goes on and on and on world without end. This is where we belong. With God in Christ. See, in Jesus, we see the fullness of the Godhead, fullness of the deity of God displayed in humanity. We see the truly human one, who though he knew no sin, he became sin. That is, he took it all on so that we could become the righteousness of God, so that we could have right standing with God and one another. See, because this is what Jesus knew, that belonging is the place of beginnings. Jesus' simple line, to God the things that are God's, is a reckoning for us. It's a reckoning for humanity, a call to give all of ourselves to God to receive belonging as the place of beginnings. Therefore, like wherever you are, wherever you are in your journey with Christ, whether this is like shaking loose years of doubt around Jesus, or this is like the first moment that you feel clarity, or you've been walking with Jesus for as long as you can remember, the call today is to put off the old and to put on the new, to put on the garments of Jesus, to stand as one who bears God's image, being restored into the image of Jesus, who is the truly human one. See, we cannot stand in our image alone. What our image does is it yields dignity, it yields honor, it yields respect. So when we see someone we disagree with, we ought not see their opinions, their parties, their orientations, any of that. We ought to see the image of God reflecting back to us. And in that, there is honor, there is dignity, there is respect. This whole, uh, I get respect when, uh, like, you'll earn it, you'll earn my respect, that's ridiculous. Because anybody who bears God's image is do that because they reflect God in all of creation. That is the beautiful story we get to tell. Church, we actually get to be the people in the world who know what it is to enter into the transforming life of Jesus. 
come on. <laughs> that belonging is the place of beginnings. That, that then we get to extend belonging to others. We get to be a community comprised of misfits. It doesn't make sense, but it's so beautiful because all of us are being reconciled to God in Christ. See, Jesus is the one who actually moves this forward. We don't. What that means is that the striving is over. What that means is that we can actually detach ourselves from the things that we found our belonging in and attach ourselves through the Spirit to God. We can say that, God, I know who I am in you, that I am loved, I am seen, I am found to be whole in you. And from that place of belonging, we can stand in this moment, come what will. This is the beauty that we have in front of us, church, is to stand in our belonging and from that place then to give to God what is God's, and that is all of us. So let's pray, church. Let's pray that we indeed could move toward that, not out of compulsion, not out of obligation, but out of gratitude. Let's pray. Father, we submit. We submit. You are in control, we are not. We relinquish the illusion of control to you in Jesus' name. We say that we receive you and now help us to live as those who have received you. God, would you help us to put off the old, the sin that so easily entangles, the, the past patterns of life and habits that call us, that pull us away from you. God, we ask for courage. We ask for a fresh filling of your spirit to put those things off and to put on our righteousness before you, Lord to put on love, to put on joy, to put on peace, to put on patience, God. Oh, Lord, to put on patience, to put on kindness and gentleness and self-control, Lord. We put on Christ this moment. Let us, Lord, let us stand fully confident in who we are in you, Jesus. Jesus, come, build your church, we pray. Amen.